If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone because individually we're great, but together we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. I think there should be space for us to acknowledge and reward fictional interpretations more. I think if we continue to have a conversation of accuracy and everything must be accurate, then it kind of weights down dramas to become less creative. And the whole joy of visual media, of television and film is that creative expression. And so we should celebrate fictional interpretations. We, we should acknowledge them as permissible and right and that they can inform us and entertain us um, in different ways. That was Hannah Gregg discussing historical drama. listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to our second podcast of September 2016. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. In the past few weeks, British TV screens have been dominated by historical dramas. ITV has drawn rave reviews and pulled in large audiences for its new portrayal of the young Queen Victoria. While on BBC One, we've just seen the return of Poldark 
for its much-awaited second series. So we thought this would be an excellent time to take a deeper look at historical dramas, how they're made and what relation they have to other forms of history. Discussing this subject with us a couple of weeks back, we were lucky enough to be joined by Hannah Gregg, a senior lecturer in early modern history at the University of York and an advisor to Poldark. Alongside her was Greg Jenner, who co-presented Inside Versailles, a historical accompaniment to the recent 18th century drama. Greg has also spent years working behind the scenes on the CBBC series Horrible Histories. Putting the questions to Hannah and Greg was our digital editor, Emma Mason. So, Hannah and Greg, it's a really exciting time for historical drama at the moment. Obviously, Versailles just come to an, come to an end, which is incredibly popular. And Poldark, we're eagerly awaiting the second series, starting on the fourth of September. Um, the two of you were heavily involved in both those projects. Maybe you could just start by telling us what your roles entailed and and how involved you were with these fantastic dramas. Well, I'm the historical advisor for the Poldark series, so. Um, in that capacity, I usually read the scripts uh, just before they start filming um, and give feedback to the director, the scriptwriter and the production team about the historical content um, of the scripts. And then I'm available to answer any questions from any members of the production um, whilst they're preparing for filming and drawing shooting um, about anything that might come up about the historical period in which Poldark set. Uh, I wasn't the consultant on Versailles. I was brought on afterwards by the BBC to co-host a sort of interesting new thing, which is a discussion show off the back of it, which um, we were trying to sort of tap into what happened in each episode, explain some of the context, give the viewers a little bit more help in understanding this period of history, because 17th century French history is not something most of us do at school. Um, So I was really um, parachuted in after it had been made. Um, but I, like Hannah, have worked as a consultant. Uh, normally I work on horrible histories where I do a similar kind of role. I'm the guy in charge of all the facts and answering all the questions and, and helping the costume and makeup team with um, specific questions about what someone should look like and, and so on. So, yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of work. And people always think it's, you know, glamorous being attached to productions, but actually we are just the encore geek, you know, <laughs> usually in a library or reading books or something like that. And how much work does this entail? Depends, doesn't it, I think. I mean, how long is Poldark? How many episodes? Uh, between eight and ten, depending on the series. Um, so that's eight to ten hours of scripted television drama um, that needs to be read, thought about, discussed, debated. Um, and so, it, you know, it has potential to be quite a significant amount of time. And the Poldark production are actually very interested and invested in the historical context. So um, they do take it all, all quite seriously and it's something that's given quite careful consideration. Um, but it's sort of like, how long is a piece of string? I mean, mm. how many questions can you keep asking about history? <laughs> like I spend my whole life talking about history. <laughs> so. uh, well, Horrible Histories is, um, uh, in previous series where I was full-time, it would be about 11 months of my life per series. So I, I start in January and would finish in December. So it's a huge undertaking. Uh, on the recent series, I've gone part-time, which is nice. I have a sort of team of researchers who help me. Um, uh, so, but even that, I started in March, and I will, I'm still working on it now, and I'll be done probably in late October. So seven months, probably. Three, four days a week. So, yeah, it's a huge amount of work, um, particularly because Horrible Histories is a comedy sketch show, so I have to be there for every single writing meeting. In fact, I lead the writing meetings and then... The writers write the sketches, I then correct the history, and then we go through the 
process of making sure the sketches are factually accurate and funny. Then we film them, and then I help the, the sort of production team with the the technical stuff of costume, makeup, pronunciation. Pronunciation is particularly when you do an ancient <laughs> Egyptian sketch and you get a phone call, Greg. <laughs> how do you pronounce Sneferakari? And you go, oh, okay, it's it's Sneferakari. But yeah, it's it's a, a long, long process, but really good fun. Um, but you have to be sort of be able to concentrate for months at a time. And that's quite a different process, really, to the sorts of dramas that I work on because, you know, I work on Poldark and I've worked on other adaptations like Death Comes to Pemberley, Jamaica Inn. Um, and often there, there's an existing novel, there's an existing text that's used to create the narrative. So whereas in Greg's projects, they're creating the narratives from scratch. They've got to find the stories. They've got to think about them. They've got to make jokes on the back of them. Um, you know, lots of the period dramas that are made in television adaptations have another text behind them. That's the working document. Um, so it's a slightly different sort of process. Mm. Absolutely. So you guys really are on call to answer a whole broad range of questions. What's the sort of most bizarre question you've you've been asked? Well, I'm often asked questions at unexpected times. So one of my favourite anecdotes is when I was in Oxford Marks and Spencers and Ray Fiennes phoned me up from the set of The Duchess to ask whether or not he should have a sword in, in his opera box during a theatre scene. Um, and, you know, quite often I might be going about my university business and suddenly find an email asking about, you know, a particular type of, um, of pipe that should be smoked or not smoked or what what might someone be doing or you know so it's unexpected it's the unexpected questions actually that are the kind of lifeblood of these production processes I find yeah I mean I was working on a drama a few years ago called 1066 for Channel 4 and uh, we had uh, some of the early dialogue in the beginning of the drama was in Middle English Old Norse and Norman French and then we dropped into English after five minutes so it was a way of establishing that these tribes are different and they've got their own languages and so I had to translate some of that did you answer the phone in Norman French? No. But, um, <laughs> they up. No, my, friend, my Norman French is not that good. I'd done it at university and I'd done bits of it. But I did have to translate a very filthy Anglo-Saxon poem. Uh, and that was sort of an interesting challenge. That's sort of one quite an early challenge as well, to sort of try and explain. And it was a, a poem about penises. So it was, um, that was an interesting challenge. But uh, yeah. And how important do you think it is that historical advisors are, are, are involved? I mean, we, it will come on to this a little later about accuracy and that's the, the never-ending question. How accurate are these series? How important do you think these roles are on historical dramas and films? Hmm. I, I think they can be hugely important and significant, but I'm not sure if they're essential. I think it depends on the project. I think it does depend a lot on the project um, and what the project wants to do with the historical context um, that's involved. Um, the discussion of accuracy is something that, you know, crops up a lot on Twitter and newspapers. And it's a way in which, um, you know, lots of dramas are judged. But as a historian involved in the process, you know, I'm always asking myself, well, what does that, of course, what does that mean? What are we trying to achieve by creating something that, that's accurate? Because history is continually being made by, by new scholarship and by historians. And so we can think about things being well informed by historical knowledge, but that's not quite the same issue as has everything, they've got everything right. That's, a, you know, and I, I'm not sure that the, the second part of that is particularly helpful always. Um, that kind of spotting is, is, is that exactly the right piece of clothing? Is that the perfect period precise room? Um, for me, what's important are is the narrative meaningful for the time in which it's set? Are the characters' motivations informed by the choices that I would understand as 
being the choices that were faced at the people at the time? Does it carry me emotionally in the way that I might think about the historical past? And those are the issues that actually really matter to me as a historian, and less so about whether or not we've sourced exactly the right type of wine glass. Yeah, I agree with all that. But I also say that Game of Thrones is perhaps the most significant historical programme on TV at the moment, which is not historical. But I think any historian who watches it immediately recognises their period in it. It's full of history from all sorts of periods, different backgrounds. And I think they, I don't think they have a historical consultant, but I think what they have is uh, a respect for history. And an understanding. obviously the, the writer initially of the books loves British history and French history. And you can see that it's very... Very much about the sort of Wars of the Roses and and Hundred Years' War, and but there's Roman stuff in there and Saxon and Viking. So I think there are some shows that are deeply historical that work very well and are still very um, powerful, and yet they probably are not being uh, assisted by an expert historian on set. I think it, it, you have to cut your cloth depending on what you're trying to achieve. I think, yeah. and and I think you can sometimes tell if a production takes history as its starting point or whether history is understood as the kind of embellishment at the end. And those are very different processes. So, you know, it might be that we think that Game of Thrones, the history is not so important at the end, but maybe it's been incredibly important mm. in inspiring the beginnings of the project. And and obviously, as a professional historian, I, I particularly draw into projects where history is embedded at the start of the process um, rather than just being you know, the kind of set dressing at the end, as though history is only about um, those period details. Yeah, I mean, I tend to um, think that there are this sort of different kind of categories for history on television as drama. But we've, you've got the actual historical events that happened and you're trying to dramatise those. I think that's where perhaps there's more of a burden to get it right or at least be pretty respectful of the truth or what we think is the truth, you know, which is obviously a, an interesting debate. And then you have, I think, the literary adaptations or the entirely fictional uh, sort of theorizes or, or postulations where you invent a historical scenario. So Poldark is obviously a literary adaptation from the 1940s. And um, Pemberley was, uh, again... A very modern yeah. book by P.D. James, inspired but by Inspired Austin. by yes, also a literary adaptation. So it's a sort of double complexity to that because, of course, you're trying to capture something which is created for entertainment but is set in a historical world. Whereas I think if you were doing a drama on, I don't know, perhaps the Titanic or the First World War or something where real lives were lost or real stories were felt and, and you know, we, the, the kind of that potency of the real human story and the impact it might have had on the world, I think then perhaps that's when there, there's more of a responsibility to be... Um, at least engaging with history. Yeah, and if you take, you know, two adaptations at the moment, I mean, so Poldark is adapted from a novel and in some ways the burden of responsibility for the production is to make sure that it's a, as, you know, close an adaptation to that novel as possible, whereas the Victoria series that's coming out is about a British monarch and so there's a responsibility there with the history to ensure that that is a fair interpretation of those real and incredibly important characters in the British past and to tell that history um, in a, you know, a significant and informed way. So you think in those instances, there's a sort of almost a duty to pay more respect and closer attention to the history? I think, um, 
I don't think dramatists need to be historians. I don't think it's their job. Yeah. I think drama's there to entertain us, and it's it's been there since the dawn of time. The, the oldest um, literary text in existence is um, from the Bronze Age, and it, it's full of monsters and gods. You know, it, it, we've, when we talk about the Gilgamesh origin story, you, you can see that there are perhaps earlier stories that got into that text, but you can see it's partially historical and partially invented. And Shakespeare is one of our greatest ever writers, and he made loads of stuff up. Um, but also you can see he's interested in the history books that he's got around him. So he's uh, hugely influenced by uh, Holland said, I think, uh, and a couple of chroniclers of the time. So we, when we adapt Shakespeare, I think we're often adapting a 16th century view of history, which is interesting in its own right. But I think actual dramatists don't have that job. That's not what they're there for. They're there to entertain us, spellbind us, to make us laugh and cry and fear for the, our favourite characters. I think the role of a historian in society is to engage with popular culture, probably after the fact or secondary to it. So I think when a great drama comes out, I think we should be on telly and on the radio, write newspaper columns, write blogs, which is happening more and more. It's brilliant on Twitter how many historians there are. You know, we follow each other on Twitter and it's a really wonderful thing to see that, that dialogue um, but I don't think the drama itself has that duty. It's that's not what it's there for. No, I, no, I think I think Greg's you know right actually, and, and in some ways the most important thing is to have a great story, and that's one of the things that I've learnt from working alongside these productions. Actually, is the incredible value of a well-told story and how that has to be the priority and the paramount concern. And anything that we can do to help drive that story forward that is informed by what we know about the past is what a historical advisor can do to assist. Um, but Greg's probably right that we shouldn't try and determine what that story is. No. Well, I mean, there's a film called Che by Steven Soderbergh, one of my favourite directors, but it's an absolutely unwatchable film. It's about six hours long. It's in two parts. It's about Che Guevara. No one watched it because it's incredibly boring because it's really sort of carefully accurate and it just doesn't have any of the pizzazz of a story it doesn't have those aristotelian poetics the sort of the three-act structure the beginning the muddle and the end it doesn't have any of the drama that you require in something that captures your imagination and if you're bored an hour in then you're not learning the history because you're bored so you know i think braveheart is perhaps the most inaccurate film in all human history uh you know it, it's a good movie it's really well made historically it's absolute nonsense. And I think some people would argue it's also had a huge impact on the rising sort of Scottish nationalism and, and people re-engaging with their past. But I don't think it had to be accurate. That's not its job. Its job was to be thrilling and inspiring. And then the role of historians is to step in and say, I'm really glad you enjoyed that. Here's a really interesting <laughs> blog about how it's not true. Um, <laughs> but, you know, this period of history is great. If you want to know more, here's a book, here's a radio play. You know, there's there's ways to engage without criticising, I think. Yeah, it's like giving up the follow-up reading, you know, your bibliography. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, yeah. So do you think it's almost necessary for the facts to, for, his, you know, for the facts to be slightly tweaked uh, in order to make it a good drama? Do, like you said, is the narrative itself just not enough? History doesn't fall into three-act structures. Uh, you know, just look around us with the whole Brexit um, scenarios where... No one knew what was happening from day to day. It was absolute sort of tumultuous chaos and journalists were struggling. Um, 
politicians didn't know what to say from day to day. And only in hindsight, I think, can we step back and go, oh, okay, so what actually happened was this and this and this, and these people, people rose and these people fell. That's a historian's view, I think. But at the time when it's happening, sometimes things are very complicated and chaotic. And I think life is complex and hard and difficult to, to dramatize in such a simplistic way. Stories have to have very rigid structures. And I'm not sure history fits that well sometimes into those kind of structures. Well, you make choices about which parts of the story to tell, perhaps. And, you know, a lifetime doesn't fit easily into an hour and a half of film if you're making a biography about a particular individual. So inevitably, you'll pick and choose the elements of that lifetime that tell the story that you want to tell, which might be about someone's professional career. It might be about someone's experience at war. It might be about someone's relationships in their moment of marriage. That's not their whole whole life story, but it's the narrative that you seek to tell. But I think that that can be well-informed by history, and that means that those choices that you're making are well-informed. Um, and then, you know, I always think that rule of thumb sometimes if a production is engaging a historical advisor is to think, well, actually, if you have those conversations, it means you're making choices rather than mistakes, that you're making informed decisions about the narrative structure informed by what we know about the past. And those choices are for the writers and for the producers to make themselves. Um, But at least they'll be well-informed ones. Often truth is stranger than fiction. Often the better story will come from the historian who'll say, well, actually, this happened. And everyone in the room will go, really? That's better than what we've got on horrible histories. My whole day job, really, is exploring these amazing things that no one has, has necessarily read. They're comedy writers. They're not historians. And often we'll just they'll ditch what they were going to do initially because the truth is funnier or stranger or more surprising because history is an enormous canvas of human behavior. And I think as soon as you look at a specific period or um, person, there's always so much truth and and, um, fascinating nuance and and human personality that you can can always get a great story out of it, I think. And I think the creative process is often interested in in finding the unusual and the unexpected and the strange. And sometimes this historian I'm asked, can you tell me all the weird stuff Mm. that comes to mind when you're reading these things? What are those details that we might only know if we have a really sophisticated understanding of the past? I want those details so that I can make it look richer on screen, that that it can be a more unexpected story. It's not about telling the same things in the same way over and over again. Um, But actually, sometimes those peculiar things can come from the knowledge of the past rather than being entirely made up um, from what we imagine today. There's been lots of discussion, especially around Versailles, the early episodes, lots of sex and nudity. Same with pole dart, the lovely topless shots that (laughs) Aidan Turner has become (laughs) so popular for. Um, Do you think it's okay for, you know, for things to be sexed up? And indeed, were people sort of romping around in the way that these uh, dramas portray? Or or is it just a, a, a bid to boost ratings? I don't think people would be surprised to discover that people had sex in the past. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's quite a common place, (laughs) sometimes even before marriage. (laughs) Yeah, the Versailles thing was interesting because I was not involved in the drama, making the drama, and the first time I saw it was before I agreed to take the job of of presenting this discussion. So I wanted to see what all the fuss was about before I agreed to stand there and talk about it. 
And obviously, yeah, there is nudity. Uh, there's way more nudity in Game of Thrones or, mm. or most of the things on HBO, to be honest. Um, but I think it was it was fairly fairly sort of upfront, so to speak. Uh, the first thing I did was read a book on the history of sex because I thought, okay, well, I'm interested to know more about this. And and the first thing I came across was a 17th century pornographic text called The School of Venus, which is unbelievably filthy. And every other line is the C word. And when I read that, I thought, right, well, okay, fine. <laughs> so, actually, this is a this is a time in history where sexuality is discussed and is openly bought and sold. There are women at court who are using their wiles to seduce men to climb the ladder. There are men who are enjoying the, the company of prostitutes, courtesans. This is a deeply sexualized place, Versailles. It's also a power politics cage. You know, sex is a weapon. And what we see in the drama is, is Louis XIV with his various women, his mistresses, his, his queen, um, negotiating with them, using sex as a, a vehicle for getting what he wants. And I think in that regard, I didn't think it was particularly uh, gratuitous or unnecessary. I think it, you, know, you certainly could do the sex with not so much nudity, but I think the sex itself was important to telling that story because sex has often been, you know, when you look at Charles II, and his use of, well, not use of, but his, his sort of litany of mistresses, his sexuality was part of his identity, but it's also part of his political techniques. Yeah, the relationships between sex, power, beauty and politics are not unique to our modern age. I mean, beauty has always brought a sense of power and sex always has a form of authority. Um, and in, you know, any court, any context, you're going to find those things being exploited and manipulated. Um, so in some ways that gives a more evocative presentation of the Court of Versailles that's meaningful to us actually as viewers about how power really operated um, rather than all just walking nicely around the garden saying, well, <laughs> let's go to the ball tonight yeah. <laughs> and wink quietly wear? across yeah. the corner. Um, you know, they're often highly charged environments. Absolutely. Also, the other thing, of course, is that um, beauty in the past was, was different. So in, in the Renaissance, women would shave their foreheads so they'd have a much higher forehead. We would find that rather odd now. I don't think we'd find it particularly beautiful. In the 18th century, your period, women are wearing an awful lot of, so are the men actually, lots of yeah. makeup, <laughs> really slapping it on. Yeah. And I think we'd find that a little bit too much. So when when you're dramatising that, you probably, you, you can choose one of two ways. You can go authentic and put them in real Georgian makeup, but maybe that doesn't capture the beauty because, of course, as a drama, you're trying to transliterate um, what they found sexy or beautiful and you're trying to communicate that to modern people. And to do that, you have to communicate to modern people with what they find beautiful and sexy. Otherwise, there's a disconnect. You know, I don't think we should always think as well that people were always less attractive in the past and we've somehow grown more beautiful through time. <laughs> um, you know, there's always people singled out in history as being incredibly beautiful within their age and if we leave aside monarchs and aristocrats who have power through other means then other celebrities in history are often celebrated for their physical appearance um, so 18th century actresses for example were reputedly to be famously attractive um, and some of the most well-remembered women of their age were celebrated primarily because of their physicality and so it would seem odd to cast an actress today who doesn't have that same quality about them um, or to have an actor playing as someone who was reputedly dashing and dastardly and had women falling at his feet like Byron to cast a modern actor who didn't convey that charisma. Um, 
So I don't think it's necessarily problematic to cast incredibly beautiful people today to play incredibly beautiful people mm. in the past. What would you say if it's an incredibly beautiful person portraying... Aminga. <laughs> <laughs> For want of a better word, yes. I th- well, I think that happens quite a lot. I do think you see that certainly in big Hollywood movies. I, I, you'll get uh, an A-list star to play someone who, when you look at the photos or the portraits, you think, well, that he clearly not that <laughs> much of a hottie. But that's the mechanics of, of um, filmmaking or TV is that star power funds these projects. You need to have a big movie star to get in it and TV dramas will have a big name often to get funding. So sometimes you just have to celebrate the fact that there are beautiful, talented actors and actresses <laughs> out there and they'll play meaty roles. And, and ultimately what they look like isn't, it's not the acting they're doing. They're, they're trying to you know, channel the, the character, the person. But I'm sure there will come a time where we'll see a very, very sexy George Washington and <laughs> it probably won't quite tally up with the portrait and the, the wooden teeth wall, not quite wooden, but, you know, the big <laughs> false teeth. But that's just Hollywood. And you mentioned earlier, Greg, um, translating history for the modern viewer. Mm. What do you think are the challenges? We mentioned, obviously, portrayal of, sort of beauty and that kind of thing. Um I guess there's issues of language. I know there was some discussion uh, when people real- realised that Versailles was not being filmed in French. Yeah. Uh, and indeed, very few of the actors even attempted a French accent. Um, is that... How, what was your what's your take on those sort of challenges and um, the approach that we take? I think, I, I think you've got a really interesting point on this. And I, I think about the sort of language itself being more modern than we realise. Well, when I'm sent a script, I'm often asked to check for period language and anachronisms and elements like that. And although, you know, sometimes particular words really do clearly communicate a particular historical period, it's not as complicated as we might think. Um, You know, there's often a presumption that period language is incredibly foreign or complicated or convoluted, that we didn't shorten words in the 18th century. And we always said, you know, the longest possible sentence. And that absolutely isn't the case. Um, There's lots of slang words, there's lots of short hand and there's lots of words which you might think are very modern that actually are used very commonly um, in the past so um, it's not necessarily such a complicated thing to write a script that's rooted in the language of a period um, but actually then of course there are some complexities so I mean Greg works across a much bigger historical time frame and you know if you set something in middle English or mm. something else then of course you probably wouldn't want to use the original language. Yeah, I mean, I suppose the only famous example of someone doing it in authentic language is Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ, which he did in Aramaic, which is a really interesting decision. Uh, I don't usually endorse Mel Gibson on anything, (laughs) uh, but that was a a bold choice. It's incredibly complicated to do because um, your actors are speaking a dead language that no one speaks, which means as your, your editor, your cinematographer, the lighting guy, no one knows what's happening. It's really hard to make a film when no one can cut between the dialogue so that's really hard to do but maybe it gave it an authenticity maybe that's why that film was so successful certainly in the middle ages Chaucerian English is just about intelligible to most of us now but it's unsettling in its like oddness I I love Chaucerian English I think it's very beautiful but if they'd done the White Queen in that kind of dialogue I, I don't think it would have got nearly as many viewers it's hard to to settle into a language that you're not familiar with, the rhythms, the, the vocabulary. Um, and of course, when you have an ancient Roman drama or Greek drama, they'll do it in modern Hollywood speak. And Hollywood speak is this impressionistic um, pseudo-historical dialogue where people will say slightly 
slightly more wordy ways of saying things. So they'll say, good day, sir, how goes the day? Rather than saying, are you all right? Or, you know, what did you have for breakfast? They'll say, what did you dine upon? And it's, it's a little bit cheesy, but it communicates the otherness of the past. It's a way of saying, look, they didn't speak English like you and me, but obviously you don't speak Latin, <laughs> we don't speak Latin, so let's all agree that they, you know, they're speaking a language you can get. So it, language is tricky. It's probably the biggest problem for any screenwriter. Uh, certainly the ones I know is what do your characters speak like? Because unless you go 18th century onwards, where I think we're, we're okay, mm, aren't yeah, we? With, yeah. We're certainly okay with Dickensian English. I think we're okay with Jane Austen. And I suspect um, 17, mid-1700s is all right. But anything pre-Tudors, I think would be difficult for viewers. And ultimately, you want to connect with them. And if we're talking about drama, then it needs to be dramatic. We need to be drawn in by the drama. And if you're distracted by any elements, whether it's a peculiar turn of phrase or an unexpected element on set or anything, then you become drawn away from that dramatic journey that you're taking on as a viewer. And it sounds like such a cliche, but it's absolutely at the heart mm. of any kind of dramatic production. These are not documentaries. Um, that's not the choice that's been made. Um, so they don't have to be concerns about all of those levels of detail. Um, but if we can have this level of details that enlighten that story, then that's all for the good. Yeah, I mean, there's a really interesting problem that we have sometimes um, is if you put into a drama something that you know to be historically accurate for the period, but viewers do not know to be historically accurate for the period, if it feels too modern for them, even though it's perfectly legitimate, it will jump them out of the story. They'll they'll bulk at it and they'll go, well, that's not right. That's not that's the wrong kind of word or the wrong kind of technology. You know, they didn't have that kind of technology. So sometimes your decision as a consultant is is you have to actually back away from what can be verified. Yeah, and there's also a set, you know, you're also often thinking about sets of audience expectations and prior knowledge on the part of the audience. So if we think about a film like The Duchess that was the biography of a very famous 18th century Duchess, Georgina, Duchess of Devonshire, and one of the most important elements to her history from a historian's point of view is her political power, her great and important political significance and her role on a political stage. But it is incredibly difficult for a modern audience to understand that a woman could be politically powerful before the 20th century. And so that become, makes it almost impossible to tell that story in a historically significant way. And so other elements of her past are therefore prioritised, which can be more quickly and easily understood by a modern audience. Um, and another, you know, obviously something that we often come across in period dramas is courtroom scenes. You know, there's a set of particular presumptions about how a courtroom scene might operate that's meaningful to us as, a mo as modern viewers. And often those courtroom elements are, are taken across different periods of time, regardless of how justice was handed out at the historical moment, because it has to be meaningful for the audience. They have to understand that someone is on trial, that someone is going to go to prison, and that this is the story in front of us. And that didn't always happen in that way in the in the past, but um, but we often need those cues for an audience to follow the kind of narrative structure. And there are other things you do. Um, I call it heroic attire. I don't know what your costume designers do on polled up, but you have to signify who your key characters are, and you'll often dress them in more intricate, interesting attire so that you can spot them in a crowded room. And you'll see it, particularly in battlefield scenes, you'll see characters take their helmet off, for, you know, which is a terrible idea for health and safety. Um, <laughs> but you don't know who's fighting. Either. You know, in the middle of a melee, you don't know who you're rooting for. And there are lots of little cheats that are completely 
ahistorical, but you know, when you pull a sword out of a scabbard, it doesn't go shing. Yeah. But you do that as a reminder that this is a sharp weapon that can kill. So it's um it's a technique that filmmakers use to get the audience excited or, or worried or alarmed, and you dress your characters in, in costumes that are bolder and more obvious than the background extras. There are lots of little tiny uh, things that you don't necessarily notice when you're watching, but they're trying to help you enjoy the, the story most of all. And sometimes they're not necessarily historically accurate, but they're there to make sure you enjoy the wider piece. What about uncomfortable truths, the side of history and side of characters that perhaps we don't want to see? How does that fit into historical drama? Well, I mean, sometimes period dramas can surprise us um, and begin to hint at different ideas of the past that we might be less familiar with. So complicated histories, contested histories, um, histories of pain and suffering that don't always make for Sunday night viewing. Um, and if you take a film production like The Duchess, which on the cover might seem like a period drama with beautiful dresses and beautiful scenes um, and sets, but there is a marital rape um, in the middle of it um, where the Duke of Devonshire rapes his wife in order to procure a male heir. Um, we don't have a historical record that a rape took place, but that sort of painful, difficult marital relationship seemed to me to be a meaningful way of interpreting aristocratic marriage in the 18th century where money and power were so incredibly important. Um, and as a historian, that a, you know, a film can tell that emotional element without having to be rooted in primary source-based evidence that if you're a historian writing the book, you'd need to prove the case. You know, a drama is free to make those positions and presumptions and lead us towards ideas about the history that might not be what we're expecting. Yeah, I, I think um, I tend to uh, describe dramas in, in different categories. I think they're what I tend to call the bonnets and bustles, which is sort of Sunday night nostalgia stuff. And then you've got the oppositional dramas, and that is the sort of gritty and grim, which is Ripper Street or Peaky Blinders, where um, we come at it from a, a very different point of view. I think we expect different things from different eras, and I think we expect different things from different genres. And so I think Downton Abbey was in the... Was in the um, bonnets and bustles category. It was sort of jolly and nice and everyone enjoyed it. And then they had that interesting sexual assault scene. I can't remember the name of the character. Maybe Anna, the maid, maybe I think, yes, was, yeah, yeah. Yeah. was attacked in the kitchen. And I think everyone was very upset about it. I remember lots of newspaper columnists being very upset. And I thought it was a very brave thing to do, but also a really powerful thing to do because sexual assault was incredibly common for um, servile staff in the kitchens at that time. Um, women would be frequently uh, abused, attacked, often made pregnant and then fired. You know, they're really a really difficult, dark undertone within that very posh aristocratic society. And I think they did a really noble thing in including it. But it ruffled a lot of feathers because people wanted their drama on a Sunday night to affirm their sort of positive view of the Roaring Twenties or, or the golden age of Edwardian Britain. Where actually you tune into Ripper Street, you'd expect that. But in Downton, you wanted something else. And I think... Uh, it's complicated, I think, sometimes when we, we tackle difficult subjects from the past. Or you might do a biography of a really interesting person or a heroic person who may not have had very nice qualities. Um, so, you know, you, there, there are great heroes of the 19th century who maybe we would find a little bit rude and abrasive or even racist. You know, I, I was just reading this week Mary Seacole's autobiography because I'm a, a great admirer of hers. But she's really racist to other black people, which we find 
quite complicated because we describe her as black. But she was quite a light-skinned black woman and she likes to sort of pass as a British white woman in some ways. She would always talk about her Scottish father and her Scottish heritage and she would call her black sort of uh, the people who worked in a hotel, she would use the N-word. And that's really odd because we, we hold her up as a icon of, of black uh, history. And I think she's a brilliant, wonderful character and really interesting. And I, you know, I recommend you read about her because I think she did a really interesting. But she, she was conflicted and, and complex. And I think if you did a drama about her, which someone should really do because she's great, I think maybe maybe people would cut that out because they would feel awkward about it. But I think really they should keep it in because I think it's such an interesting insight into that period of history. I mean, one of the reasons that I'm a Poldark fan as well as someone who works on the production is actually that is a drama that also doesn't shy away from some of the bleaker stories of the past and some of the darker realities of 18th century life. And, and I always remember from series one, being sent the scripts um, for the, towards the end of the series where Ross and Demelza's infant daughter dies, um, you know, of an illness that's just swept through the local community. And of course, if you're writing a romantic story, you wouldn't necessarily normally incorporate those kind of elements. But that is a much more accurate representation of an 18th century past that affected rich and poor alike. I've read many a diary of an 18th century woman who's buried five or ten children. Um, and it's devastating and bleak, um, and we should not airbrush those elements out of our history. And Poldark, actually, even though it is a fiction written in the 1940s, it is fairly scrupulously researched by the author Winston Graham. And as an 18th century historian, it's those elements of the 18th century past that you know, really resonate resonate with me. So then how accurate then would you say, so obviously Paul Dyke's slightly different because it's based on novels, um, and Versailles, it'd be, it'd be interesting to have your take on how, how accurate you think they are, given what we've talked about. So, so Versailles is an interesting one because it's um, the, the showrunners, the, the creators of the show previously worked on Spooks, and you can see that there's a conspiratorial bent to the, the narrative, that there's a sort of a... Uh, evil plot afoot and and as the series develops you follow that through and that plot is true but not quite in the way it happened in reality so that they've extrapolated sort of a, a bigger plot from a, a real plot that was led by a man called Louis de Rohan um, and lots of what's in that drama is is stuff that I found familiar and I could go yep yeah, I've seen that I've read that I've read this but it didn't necessarily happen in exactly the same order or across the same chronology They've compressed the timeline, so they it covers two and a half years, that first series from 1667 to 1670. And um, quite a lot of it is more or less true, but they've invented quite a lot of in, uh, made-up characters who they can then kill off or make, you know, uh, um, naughty, evil villains because... Sometimes you can be hamstrung by real people from history because then you have a moral responsibility to be fair and honest to them. And so if you invent characters and drop them into a real scenario, what you can do as a screenwriter is create a world that is based on some fact, captures the spirit and essence of the time. Because Versailles is about Louis XIV fighting against the aristocracy and crushing them very slowly using a very clever manipulation through power politics, ritual, but also economics. He, he, he makes them, he, they end up owing him lots and lots of money. He's a very shrewd, clever man. He ends up the most powerful man in Europe, but he started his life uh, almost being executed, murdered. You know, his, his parents have 
struggled through a civil war. So he's grown up in a very tumultuous, combustible time. And a drama basically captures his struggle against those forces. And a lot of it is true, but a lot of it's made up. But I think the stuff that's made up feels of the spirit. It feels about, it feels right in terms of these are the kind of things that were going on behind closed doors, but we can't prove them. But, you know, as a historian, they felt of the period. I, with Polduck, it's almost impossible to answer, really, because it's 1940s fiction set in an 18th century past being made today. So, you know, who, what are we being accurate for? But, I mean, there is a real commitment to respecting the novels um, in the course of the adaptation, and it's very clear from the novels that they very, were very carefully researched by Winston Graham. So they are closely informed by 18th century sources, 18th century stories and 18th century histories. Um, political moments matter. Um, it's clear that Winston Graham has taken real elements of Cornish history from sources that he's found and used those to inform the stories that he's telling. Um, so I think I'd say it's inspired by, <laughs> um, but accuracy is a difficult one to address, isn't it? The other massive problem is even in a brilliant drama like Wolf Hall, which I think everyone loved, and again, a literary adaptation, but one that's forensically careful in, in studying the, the minutiae, the huge problem with that story is we don't know the truth. And historians, what do historians do? We squabble and debate. You know, that's, that's <laughs> yeah. literally what we do all day long. And we do it hopefully in a nice, friendly way. But the essence of history is, is discussion and often argument. And a historical drama cannot do argument. You can't have a sort of quantum drama in which you say one thing and then immediately say, but the, the other also happened. And you can't have footnotes. Um, although I did make a drama about 1066 where we did put captions up on screen with quotations. And we did, uh, my colleagues who made that also made a drama about Belson, the relief of Belson concentration camp, where they put captions up on screen. So you fade to black and you put up an actual caption from the official report or from a poem, a ninth century poem, Anglo-Saxon. And it suddenly lifts you out of the drama and reminds you of the, the the sort of textuality of the period or even the sources that you're using. And that's quite an effective technique, but it is very unfamiliar. I haven't seen it used by anyone else. And I sometimes think, is there a way for dramas or fictions to reveal the moments that are factually based and the moments that are imagined or fictionalised? Um, and so, you know, we had a chat, was could you use a different font if you're writing a book for the, the factual bits and then the fictional bits? Um, but in terms of a production, I'm always, you know, really interested by um, the period film from, I can't remember the date, quite a few years ago now, but Amadeus, mm. where Amadeus Mozart spends the whole time in the film with this kind of crazy pink wig and he has a very different tone to his voice and a different language in the script but all of the rest of the context is this beautifully wrought kind of 18th century world. And it's almost as though there's a self-conscious recognition of the fictionalised element and that actually visually we're allowed to understand that it's a fiction. And sometimes I think that productions have become wary of presenting themselves as a fiction, that they're being repeatedly asked to present themselves as a perfectly accurate representation of the past. But there should be freedoms to reveal elements that are made up. There should be other visual codes that permit us yeah. to say, this is the drama bit, this is the bit we don't really know, but, you know, let's put a pink wig on that bit. So in Horrible History, yeah, in Horrible Histories, we innovated, we created a rat character who's a historian, he's called Ratus Ratus, and he's me. He's an <laughs> annoying, hairy pedant with bad jokes. Uh, and he has a little placard, and he pops up in the middle of the sketch and holds a little placard up to say if this is true or not, or if this is silly, or, you know. And so what that does is it reaffirms things that are factually accurate 
and then uh, sort of warns viewers not to believe necessarily the really silly bit at the end where everyone falls over. Uh, but he is acting as footnotes in a live-action comedy sketch show, and I don't think it would work in a drama. But it's we like ha- a red button. Yeah, like. <laughs> exactly. Um, but just, I just when you were saying that, I just suddenly remembered a really interesting modern film that is actually, I suppose, a historical drama. It's The Big Short which is won an Oscar, I think, about the financial crash. So when we talk about historical drama, most of us maybe think about wigs and, and bonnets and chain mail, but actually a historical drama is anything that is trying to tell a story from the past. And that film had a really interesting scene in it. I desperately want to ask the screenwriter why they included it. There's a scene in it where a character, two characters having a really interesting chat in the sort of big bank and they come to a really momentous moment. They pick up a newspaper and the newspaper, it says something, something, something. And they suddenly know how they can make loads and loads of money. And then the voiceover comes over and says, that didn't happen, by the way. I made that up. And then it just moves on to the next scene. And I sat in the cinema and just went, hang on a minute. That's amazing. I've never seen that before. That is a sort of voice of God just acknowledging <laughs> that was a really interesting scene. I thought it would be great if it had happened. It didn't happen, but I put it in anyway. Hope you're enjoying the movie. Bye. You know, and a really yeah. sort of metatextual thing that didn't jar with me. It didn't make me enjoy the film less, and yet it acknowledged its own fictional element. Yeah, I mean, I think I think there should be space for us to acknowledge and reward fictional interpretations more. I think if we continue to have a conversation of accuracy and everything must be accurate, then it kind of weights down dramas to become less creative and. The whole joy of visual media, of television and film, is that creative expression. And so we should celebrate fictional interpretations. We we should acknowledge them as permissible and right and that they can inform us and entertain us um, in different ways. I think that's fine. Yeah, I mean, the horrible histories is obviously patently absurd when you actually look at it quite carefully. <laughs> I mean, we, we're a factual show. We work incredibly hard um, to put facts in whenever we can. But ultimately, we have... You know, Charles II rapping and Julius Caesar not doing happen? no, oh, no, we're oh, not. No. <laughs> so you know, we obviously you're you're putting modern, modern grammar, modern logic, modern televisual jokes into the past, and kids get that they know it's not real. But weirdly, at the same time, people seem to really enjoy the history in the show, and it's a way of engaging with historical information and trying to communicate ways of thinking about the past in an incredibly hyper modern way that kids get they know that it's silly they know it's a pantomime but they also get that it's historical so there are ways i think of innovating and being quite bold and creative and if that doesn't work then just get me to stand at the end of the program and tell you (laughs) for eight minutes with kate williams just go that didn't happen (laughs) next time um greg will do it entirely in a rap (laughs) (laughs) i really won't Musical theatre. <laughs> so what then would you say is the value of historical drama? To engage and excite us, I think. I mean, we can seek out further information after that, but if a student comes to me and the, the first and only thing they saw was a film, then, you know, that's a delight to me. That, And then we can move on from there and find out more about the past, but it is about to engage and excite people, I think. Totally agree. I think... Um, there is no other medium on the planet that reaches as many people as film or, or drama. Drama um, viewing figures usually hit between three to four million. A big drama like Downton gets eight to ten million. A best-selling book will sell 50,000 copies. Uh, a really successful documentary gets 1.8 million. You've got no chance of reaching that many people until you get actual actors performing your, your story. And it's such an effective way of reaching people I just think that off the back of that, there needs to be more engagement from historians, more acknowledgement that there is a 
there's a sort of secondary argument or not even an argument, a discussion to follow off the back of it. And often people who are, as you say, captured and excited by that drama will want to know more. They'll want to look up, they'll get a book or they'll, they'll go and maybe even study at a university. You know, I think so many people ended up as historians or um, specialists in certain fields because of something in their childhood or something when they were young and it captured, you know, I, I loved Maid Marian and her Mary, you know, the, the Tony Robinson sort of ludicrous comedy thing that made me really laugh and I loved Monty Python's Holy Grail. It's about imagining worlds. I mean, as a historian, you are imagining a world and when you create a drama, you're imagining a world, you know, and it's about sparking that inspiration. Um, that's what's important and that's why I think, yeah, it's great for historians to participate in that process. That was Hannah Gregg and Greg Jenner. You can find out more about Poldark and Victoria on our website, historyextra.com. And look out for a special edition of BBC History magazine dedicated to the Georgians, which will contain an article by Hannah Gregg on the history behind Poldark. That's due to be published early next month. Meanwhile, the October issue of our regular magazine goes on sale today. In this month's edition, we have articles on Victorian slums, King Canute, 19th century Europe and women in politics. You can get hold of our October issue now in all good news agencies in the UK and internationally in our many digital formats. Outside the UK, it may still be an earlier edition that's currently in the shops. And if you'd like to take out a subscription, we currently have a great deal available for new subscribers in the United States where you can try three issues of the magazine for a total of just $9.95, including postage. You can find out more and take advantage of this offer by visiting buysubscriptions.com forward slash history US. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow, ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow, now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. 
You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. And now let's rejoin Emma Mason for this week's history news. Skulls and other artefacts from the 1545 wreck of Henry VIII's warship, the Mary Rose, are being exhibited online for the first time as 3D reconstructions. The public website, virtualtudors.org, launched on Monday, offers an interactive view of the skull of a carpenter found on the ship's lower deck, as well as several of his possessions. A separate, research-focused section of the site will make a further nine skulls available to bone specialists around the world. The website is the result of a collaboration between Swansea University, the Mary Rose Trust and Oxford University. The idea is to see how much can be learned about the lives of the ship's crew just from their digitised bones. The team wants to assess whether experts can glean as much from digital remains as the real thing. Richard Johnston, a materials engineer at Swansea, said, Do you really need to hold the skull, or can you tell a lot from the digital one? The Mary Rose sank during the Battle of the Solent in 1545. Hundreds of men aboard the ship drowned, and only 25 survived. The ship was discovered in May 1971 and raised in 1982. In other news, the National Trust has warned that there is a, quote, real risk of future generations forgetting Sir Winston Churchill's legacy. The warning came as the Heritage Organisation launched a £7 million appeal to raise funds to acquire hundreds of Churchill's personal effects, including his Nobel Prize for Literature and the box in which he kept the notes for his famous speeches, the Telegraph reports. The heirlooms, which would be purchased from Churchill's great-grandson, Randolph, would form the centrepiece of a revamped exhibition at Chartwell, the former Prime Minister's family home. Visitors to the Kent mansion would, for the first time, be able to access the former Prime Minister's bedroom and bathroom. The project, known as Churchill's Chartwell, will also fund a new outreach programme that the National Trust says will ensure that Churchill, quote, remains relevant to future generations. In a press release accompanying the appeal for funds, the Heritage Organisation said, There is a real risk of Churchill's legacy being consigned to the records of history unless we find new ways to excite and inspire the public's interest and understanding of this man. Without these items, the spirit of Chartwell and the ability to tell the Churchill family's story would be greatly diminished. Meanwhile, a collection of rare Shakespeare folios has gone on show at the University of Leeds as commemorations continue to mark 400 years since the playwright's death. The set of four folios was collected by Lord Brotherton of Wakefield, with the first folio dating to 1623, just seven years after the writer's death. The other three date from 1632 to 1685 and demonstrate the development of language and printing aesthetics during the 17th century, the Telegraph reports. Co-curator Kit Hayam said, So often when we talk about Shakespearean England, they really mean Shakespearean London. But as this exhibition shows, if we ignore the North, we ignore some of the most interesting things about Shakespeare's plays and their legacy. So many of Shakespeare's most dramatic stories are stories of Yorkshire, and our country's actors and theatres have a long-standing love affair with his plays. The earliest collections of Shakespeare's work are on show at the For All Time Shakespeare in Yorkshire event at the University of Leeds.
Now, just before we go, here's a reminder that tickets are currently on sale for our History Weekend events, which take place in Winchester from the 7th to 9th of October and York from the 18th to 20th of November. Speakers include some of the biggest names in British popular history, such as Michael Wood, Dan and Peter Snow, Susanna Lipscomb, Anthony Beaver and many more. A few talks have begun to sell out, so do check out the website historyweekend.com to book your tickets while still available. Well, that's about it for this week, but please do tune in next time when we'll be talking about Cold War summits. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. Thank you.